Good morning. I can tell I am out of shape. I used to do three of these in a morning, and uh, I did one this morning, and I'm already worn out. I guess they don't make us like we used to be. Okay. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And please stand as we will read the first seven verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for this great passage, uh, this great encouragement to us who are living in a world of uncertainty, sometimes a world of danger, a world of confusion, I thank you that we have a solid rock because we have a solid God. Guide us, Father, through this passage. May it be a passage of encouragement to your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> First Peter has been a great encouragement to God's people through the years, through the ages. First Peter is written to a group of people who are greatly suffering for their faith. First Peter was written to encourage them in their relationship with God, though the future for each of them seemed uncertain and the present for many of them was very painful. Throughout church history, God's people have faced opposition. They faced persecution and even death. Even as I speak today, 45 countries... In, uh, on this planet are places where Christians are not safe. In fact, they're suffering greatly. In fact, um, just the, in just the last six months, in one country alone, Nigeria, 3,462 of our brothers and sisters in Christ have died because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That is 17 a day, just in one of the 45 countries. During that same time, over 3,000 Christians have been kidnapped. Most of them, or many of them, women and young girls. Uh, there have been 1,000 school-age children kidnapped uh, from, from Christian schools, 130 just this week. There have been 300 churches that have been threatened, attacked, closed, destroyed, or burnt. There are thousands of Christians in that country who have fled from their homes, from their jobs, from everything that they knew, uh, 
and have fled farther south to get away from the persecution. In addition to this, and there are many who are suffering much more greatly than we are, we in the United States are currently seeing a growing hostility toward the Christian faith within our own country. Uh, we seem to be losing more and more of our religious liberties. In fact, I just came across a number of articles this week. I'm not going to read them all to you. But here is from the state of Washington. Uh, many of you are uh, familiar with Baronel Stutzman. She's the Washington florist who uh, declined to design a specific custom-designed wedding bouquet for a same-sex marriage. And as a result of that, the state of Washington went after her. The same is true of a web designer uh, because uh, he could not do what he was being asked to do. Uh, in Seattle, Union Gospel Mission uh, was attacked. Um, in fact, uh, the Washington State Supreme Court uh, has uh, held them guilty for not hiring a person who was involved in a same-sex relationship. And they've now appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Outside of the state of Washington, Gordon College in Massachusetts has also appealed recently to the U.S. Supreme Court because the Massachusetts Supreme Court says that, uh, that uh, it, it doesn't matter that they're a Christian college, that they have to hire anybody with other beliefs. And uh, they have to promote people who are teaching things contrary to their beliefs. In fact, uh, there was a social work professor who claimed that the school denied her promotion uh, as a pro full professor because of her position on LGBT uh, positions, a Christian school. Massachusetts is holding the school guilty, and they've uh, uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, in addition to that, another college, Missouri's College of the Ozarks, is contesting a U.S. Department uh, of Housing and Urban Development directive demanding that they open their dorms and showers to members of the opposite sex. Uh, those are things that are going on currently in our country. There are people who are suffering. I've got another one that's full of just as many or more things. Uh, but probably the most disturbing happened just last week in Portland. Any of you familiar with what happened in Portland last week? Last Saturday, uh, a church held a church service in a park. Anybody know about holding a church service in a park? We do it, don't we? And a uh, church held this church service in a park, and Antifa showed up with shields and, and uh, other weapons. Uh, they showed up with mace, with pepper spray, with flash uh, bombs uh, and other types of fireworks uh, and um, uh, attacked the Christian group in the park. Oh, they had rotten eggs, they had black paint and other stuff. They threw a flash bomb in a group of children uh, ages four months to ten years old. They uh, went up and took the PA system off the stage and threw it into the Willamette River. And all of this happening uh, while uh, the police chose to do nothing. Uh, this is some of the things that are going on currently around us. And there's a growing hostility toward Christianity in the media and other places uh, in the United States. We're not facing the things that some of the other countries are facing, but things are difficult. And I know a number of Christians who are fearful, who are angry, who, who are uncertain, who are unwilling to speak up for their faith because, because they feel threatened. And there seems to be a... Uh, growing reaction to, to Christians speaking up, and they fear ridicule and hostility. Uh, but we're not seeing anything new. What we're seeing today has been the fate of our brothers and sisters 
from the very, very beginning. The apostles were imprisoned. Stephen was stoned to death. Uh, Paul was beaten, whipped, stoned, and imprisoned. The persecution was so bad in Jerusalem that the Jerusalem Christians scattered throughout uh, the Mediterranean area. We see in the book of Acts that persecution broke out in Philippi, in Corinth, and in Ephesus. And then they really got serious about it around 64 A.D. when the emperor Nero uh, burned two-thirds of the buildings and dwellings in Rome uh, to make room for his urban development project. Um, when word got out that he had started the fire, he turned the blame upon Christians for the blaze. He said not only did the Christians uh, deserve uh, persecution because they burned down the city, which he actually had done, but he said because they are haters of mankind. That is, that Christians couldn't participate in the sensuality and the debauchery and the immorality that was going on in the culture. They were considered to be haters of mankind. In this, there was terrible persecution. They were fed to animals in the Colosseum. They were, they were burned alive. Some were wrapped in, in garments of pitch and used to light Nero's garden party. And so brothers and sisters have suffered tremendously. When 1 Peter was written in 64 A.D., it was written either just before or just after Nero's decree. Peter is writing to people who are suffering. He himself anticipates suffering. Uh, he is writing to the, to the church, telling them things that he himself is going to experience very, very shortly as he will be crucified upside down and the apostle Paul will be beheaded. Now, I want you to just look, and we're just going to take a quick glimpse through First Peter, at some of these things on suffering. This is a, a great book in times of uncertainty or particularly in times when Christians are facing persecution. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we read this a moment ago, but we'll read it again. In this you greatly rejoice, even now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Turn to chapter 3, verse 14. He's talking to the believers here about their persecution. And he says, but even, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Not with anger. Not with reaction. But with gentleness and reverence. Look at chapter 4 starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And one more place, chapter 5, starting at verse 9. But resist him firm in your faith. It's talking about the devil who is empowering their persecutors. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, 
the God of all grace, who called you by his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As you can see, all of 1 Peter is about suffering. In this section, in this book, Peter keeps telling them they, they need to rejoice and praise God in the midst of their persecution. Rejoice and praise God in the midst of their suffering. Now, the question comes, how can you and I, how can our brethren in Nigeria, how could the people in this book rejoice and praise God experiencing the things that they were experiencing? We're going to see a few of the reasons in our passage this morning. If you want all of them, study the book. But we'll take a look at just verses uh, 1 to 7 in verse 1. First of all, in verse 1, we see that they were aliens living in a foreign land. Peter, the apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are aliens scattered throughout Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We have a group of Christians who are aliens. That doesn't mean they came from another planet. It may, they came from a different place on this planet. It means that they had been in a country because of persecution that they were exiles. Uh, they had fled from their homelands and were exiled in what is modern-day Turkey. We know that they were from other lands. As you read on in the book, it's not just talking uh, um, theologic. Oh, well, we'll get into that in a minute. They actually had been scattered from their homes, from their uh, places that they were familiar with. They, had, they were now scattered in an area where there was a different culture, different moral standards, and that people had people who worshipped a different God. As you read First Peter, you find out that they were being mocked, ridiculed, rejected, and persecuted in this new place. There's a lesson here for all of us, however. We haven't been scattered from Spokane and had to go into Canada or something. Of course, that's just as bad now. But uh, uh, we are, in a sense, aliens. We read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of the United States. But I'm only living here temporarily. My true citizenship, my ultimate citizenship, is in heaven with God. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a citizen of heaven. The point I want to make here is that in the midst of rejection and hostility, remember that old saying, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Peter is encouraging the people in this section. And one of the things we're going to see is that he, he will encourage them to, re, to remember that this world is not our home. We're only here temporarily. There's a second lesson here. Don't be surprised if you are misunderstood, resented, ridiculed, or even hated because of your faith in Christ. In chapter 4, we read... Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes up on you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening. He's saying, as Christians, we can anticipate it. We can expect it. We have had a, a strange freedom in this country. 
our forefathers came here uh, to flee religious persecution in Europe, most of them. Uh, religious persecution was common over there. Uh, Bloody Mary, Queen of England, uh, burned 300 uh, evangelical Christians at the stake in England. There's a reason our forefathers wanted to come over here. It was cooler. Um, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but they were persecuted. They were persecuted. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word which I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, you keep my, if they keep my word, they will keep yours also. So the first thing to remember is that we are aliens living in a foreign land temporarily. And that living in this foreign land, uh, opposition and hostility to our Lord and to us because we represent our Lord is to be expected. We have had the rare privilege in this country of enjoying religious freedom. But that's not the norm historically or geographically so he's saying remember who you are if things get tough remember that you're a citizen of heaven but he goes on peter encourages them by reflecting on what god has done for them let's take a look go back to verse uh end of verse one and into verse two it says you who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of god the father by the sanctifying work of the spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Peter mentions a number of things. First of all, that they can be encouraged when they remember and they reflect on the fact that God chose them. The word chose here uh, has the idea they were selected. They were picked out by God. He's saying that those who have come to Christ were originally chosen by God. Uh, chosen for what? Well, he's going to later in First Peter in chapter 2 verse 9 tell us. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. God has selected people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's selected people from every group. For reasons beyond our, our understanding other than he loves us. He's chosen us and formed a new nation. A people for his own possession. A people who are a holy priesthood who can interact and relate with him. We go on and see in this section that God chose them according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now when we see the word foreknowledge it means here that uh, God's choice was based on his predetermined plan. God didn't choose them because he knew in advance that they would trust Christ. They believed in Christ, as we see here, because God's choosing included the fact that he was going to sanctify them by the Holy Spirit. God chose them by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God not only chose the ends, God chose the means. In eternity past, before he founded, before the foundation of the world, we see in Ephesians, God chose us by his grace, just by his grace. 
But when he chose us, he also chose the means. How are we going to come to Christ? By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, by the setting apart unto God. Uh, God the Father chose us. God the Holy Spirit brings us to faith in Christ. As we look at the New Testament, we see it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin, of our righteousness, and our judgment. It's the Spirit working in our hearts that helps us to understand our need for a Savior. It's God the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand what Jesus did for us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit, we see in the New Testament, repeatedly bears witness of Jesus. We see that it is the Holy Spirit who illumines our minds to understand the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, it says, The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually understood. It's the Spirit of God who who helps us to understand these things. In our rebellion and hardness of heart, in, in our distorted thinking, we would not understand or come to Christ. We see in the New Testament that it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, causes us to be born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus explained that. We see it in Titus chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I think, sums this up best of all. It kind of puts all these parts together. It says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. The Father chose us. The Spirit brought about our new birth. We, we believe by faith. We see also that God chose them to obey Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, what does it mean here? He chose them to obey Christ. I thought we were saved by grace through faith, not by keeping some list of rules. What does it mean here that he chose them to obey Christ? As I look at 1 Peter, uh, there are a couple options that I had, but I look at 1 Peter, we see in chapter 4, verse 17, and he talks, uses the phrase, obey the gospel. Well, how do you obey the gospel? I think what he's talking about here. When we're presented with the gospel, we have a choice to make. Will I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, repent of my sins, or will I push him away? When I, respond, when I repent and respond in faith, I am choosing to follow Christ. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And this being sprinkled with his blood is figuratively, obviously, it's not literally. But the... Uh, a statement here sprinkled with his blood is a figure of speech which uh, pictures the benefits of Christ's death, Christ's death on the cross, Christ shedding his blood for us, being applied to you and me so that our sins are cleansed, that they're washed away, that we're redeemed. So what do we see? God has chosen them. God has chosen them according to his predetermined plan. God has... has uh, Chosen to sanctify them in the process by the work of the Holy Spirit. And God has chosen them to obey Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. By God's grace, then we can have peace in the midst of suffering, is what Peter is saying. By God's grace, we have peace with God at salvation. By God's grace, we can have the peace of God in the midst of our suffering. When we understand our relationship with God.
What, what lessons can we learn here? Well, first of all, in the midst of suffering, remember what the Trinity has done for you. Obviously, none of us are suffering like they are in Nigeria right now. But you, we, we can face rejection. We can face ridicule. We can, we can face um, mocking. Some might even face injustice as a baker or a website designer or a florist. In the midst of suffering, remember what the Trinity has done for you. God the Father chose you before the foundation of the world, before He created the world. That's what it says in Ephesians 1.4. He chose you before the foundation of the world. God the Holy Spirit drew you to faith in Christ. You believed in Christ because God's choosing included the sanctifying work, the drawing work of the Holy Spirit. God the Son shed His blood and died so that you might be saved. Talk about persecution. Jesus left the safe space of heaven to come to earth and take on a human body. He was willing to be rejected, ridiculed, mocked, beaten, scourged, spat upon, and killed in a torturous way. To pay the price for your sins and mine so that we, he might bring us unto himself. In verses 3 to 5, we see that we're called upon to praise God in the midst of suffering. Why can I praise God? Why can I rejoice in the midst of suffering? Because he's caused us to be born again. But there's much more to that as we see in this section. Look at verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As we look at this section, we see, first of all, that God caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. Why did God save you and me? It was His mercy, His compassion, His love. God demonstrated His love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he didn't wait for us to clean up. He mercifully reached down to us when we're in rebellion, slopping around in the mud. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't have a dead Lord. We have a living hope. Because Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Therefore, our faith, our hope, is not simply wishful thinking. My hope, my confidence is because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. As a non-Christian, looking at Christianity, 
while I was a college student. The thing, uh, the two things that made the greatest impression on me were fulfilled prophecy and the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which I thought didn't exist. But as I examined them, there's more than adequate evidence, more than convincing evidence of the resurrection, both from secular as well as sacred texts. Uh, we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Jesus Christ's resurrection is the greatest evidence that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did and would do what he said he will do. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest confidence that I have that I am truly saved. If he was still in the grave, what confidence could we have? The resurrection of Jesus, the fact that we have a, a living hope, means that I have someone to turn to in troubled times in prayer because I have a living Lord. The resurrection of Jesus gives me a living hope because that, that I will one day myself be resurrected because he said I would be. Resurrection sounds absurd. It sounds impossible. And humanly speaking, it is absurd. And it is impossible. But the fact that Jesus is God and Jesus rose from the dead and he promised that we would too and he would bring us to be with him has credibility because Jesus Christ rose from the dead himself. But he goes on here. He says, not only were we born again according to his grace and born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you and I are born again to a heavenly inheritance. That God has given us an inheritance in heaven, those of us who know him. An inheritance which he says here is imperishable. That is, it's indestructible. It doesn't rust or decay or rot. It is, it is the deal that uh, doesn't uh, lose its value because of inflation. It is secure. It is imperishable. Our inheritance is an inheritance which is undefiled. That is, it can't be ruined by the stain or pollution of sin. Our inheritance will not fade away. It's not like a flower. It's not going to wilt, wither, and blow away. And our inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. You know what? It's in the first universal bank of heaven. Nobody can steal from that bank. God has given us an inheritance which he himself has reserved for you. It waits there for you to arrive. God is protecting your inheritance for you in heaven. And we'll talk more about that inheritance in a little bit. But God is also protecting you for your inheritance. Did you get that? God's protecting your inheritance for you. God is protecting you for your inheritance. Take a look at verse 5. It says, For you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only is your, your inheritance protected, you are protected by the power of God. You know what that means? You can't lose your salvation. God's not going to cast you out. Your salvation doesn't depend upon you hanging on to God, but upon God hanging on to you. A lot of times we have this idea that somehow 
we've got we've to gotta grab hold of God and, and, and He's going to rescue us from something. But John 10 says it's not like that. In John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, it says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. That's a, a, an emphatic statement in the Greek. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then he goes, so it's not you trying to hold on to God to get to heaven. It's God holding on to you. God the Son and God the Father. And may I say, you're not going to be able to squeeze out between the fingers. It's based upon His holding on to you. Not your holding on to him. That's encouraging, isn't it? What are the lessons? The lessons are this. In the midst of suffering, rejoice in what you have in Christ. Yes, life is going to be difficult, but think of who you are and what you have. You've been born again into the family of God. You have a living hope. You have an indestructible inheritance reserved in heaven for you. You yourself are protected by the power of God. You're eternally secure. God won't reject you. Satan can't steal you. And you can't lose your salvation. Because it's dependent upon him. And ultimately he says you'll be delivered from all suffering when Christ returns. In verses 6 and 7, it says, Rejoice in the midst of suffering, knowing these things. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First of all, rejoice in the midst of suffering, knowing that life's trials are temporary. Whatever we're going through is only temporary for a short time. Compared to eternity, it's but a blip on the screen. Second of all, rejoice knowing that life's trials are sometimes necessary. Now, that's interesting. Necessary. Necessary for what? It says if necessary in, in the English, but the Greek is written in such a way to indicate that they are necessary. In fact, in uh, two verses, it directly states in First Peter that our trials are God's will. You might want to check 317 and 419, and there are two or three others that, that give the same idea. Now you say, how can, my, how can the terrible things that happen to people, how can, in this case, persecution and suffering, how can it be God's will? The Bible gives at least eight reasons why God allows His people to suffer, why our suffering can be in His will, and it can be a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, we're not going to go through all eight today, but I've got some good news for you. Three are found in this passage. Um, we see, first of all, that life's trials prove our faith. 
They are the proof of our faith. That is, they test the genuineness and strength of your faith. Because of your trials, they are they they not only test the genuineness and strength of your faith, that your trials themselves strengthen your faith. They help you to build spiritual muscle, if you will. They help you to mature as a human being, as a child of God. James chapter 1 is one of the places we see this. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Any of you ever try to run a marathon? Okay. A few smart people here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I used to do some running. I never did the marathon. I did the 10Ks and all that stuff. But, um, you know, when you first start working out in the spring, you hit, you hit the uh, three-mile mark or whatever. You haven't been able to run all winter. At least you couldn't poke a tunnel. It was colder than here. But anyhow, uh, the... Uh, you get out there in the spring and you hit the two mile mark, you hit the three mile mark, and you're done. But you know, as it goes on, you hit the four mile mark, you hit the five mile mark, you hit the six mile mark. Why? Because of all the suffering and the struggling that you did to hit the one mile mark to begin with. The, the exercise builds endurance. And that's what we see it's saying here. The trials that God sends us build spiritual strength, build spiritual muscles, help us to mature as Christians. But we also see that life's trials purify us. Our faith is like gold, which is refined and purified by fiery trials. We see in in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He is saying here that when we suffer in the flesh, it causes us to stop sinning. Now, it doesn't mean we reach sinless perfection here, but it changes us. One of the nice things about retirement, it gives you time to reflect. And I've had time just to reflect on what God had to use when he decided to use me. God chose a proud, insecure, self-promoting, know-it-all, and a lot worse than that. That is what God chose. But through the trials, through the rejections, through the mockings, through the other things that he brought into my life that forced me to my knees, that forced me to to deal with things in my heart and, and, and in my life, Through those things, God has changed me over the years. Now, am I perfect? I could tell you yes, but then you go talk to my wife. But uh, have I arrived? No, I haven't. But you know, by the grace of God, through the, the hard spots in life, He changes us, doesn't He? He helps us to grow. He helps us to mature. He transforms us. Life's trials are more precious, it says here, than gold that is purified, however, because the proof of our faith will result in praise and honor and glory when Christ returns. We can praise and glorify God when we look at our past and present trials in light of our eternal 
rewards. The Bible talks about an inheritance for God's people, but it also talks about rewards for how we deal with this life. So you have an inheritance, but the Bible also talks about rewards. In 1 Peter 4.13, it says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Even more direct is Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's like being adopted by Bill Gates, but even better. You're heirs of God, children of God. And it says, joint heirs with Christ. If we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. Now that is, what does that mean? That we're going to be glorified with Him. That God is going to, in some way, reward us. Now I can speculate, and I've got different ideas of what might, part of what might be being referred to is but I don't really know what this means what does it mean that when we're, we suffer with him in the future we will be glorified with him sounds good to me I don't know what it means but doesn't it sound good God has something special for us some special reward in heaven because of what we're willing to endure for his name's sake in fact, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. You know, the people he's talking to, we wouldn't think that what they're experiencing is light affliction, would we? We know it's momentary, but it's not light in our estimation. But when it is compared to what the reward of glory that God is going to give, is going to seem like nothing. I want to just share with you in these last few moments the words of some of our brothers in the faith. I should have got some from some of our sisters in the faith too because there's a couple of them that they experienced terrible suffering and made statements. But Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. We've been reading through or studying through the book of John for quite a while here. The writer of the book of John discipled Polycarp. In 155 A.D., Polycarp was standing before the judge. The judge told him he would let him go free if he would swear by the emperor and curse Christ. All you got to do is swear by the emperor and curse Jesus, and I'll let you go free. And Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? The dialogue went on. The judge threatened to burn him alive. Polycarp stated that the fire that the judge would light would only last a moment, but the eternal fire would never go out. Finally, those who were there at the time tell us that as Polycarp was tied to a stake and the fire was lit, he said this, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs I may share 
in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. A real live brother in the faith. In case you think he was the only one, here's Eusebius. Eusebius in 339 was standing before the emperor of Alans. The emperor threatened to take away all of his goods to, to torture him, to, to banish him, and even to kill him. Eusebius was a Greek scholar and a, and a historian, and he wrote this. He needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him free at liberty from sin and sorrow. That's a brother in the faith. In case you think it's just the ancient guys, I got somebody from a month ago. Tamir is a brother in a Central Asian Republic. Tamir was called before the state, state secret police, which is formerly known as the KGB. He was detained, interrogated, and fined for his ministry activities. And one of the officials warned him that if he continued, he'd be stoned, which means to death. Here's what Tamir said recently. Dying for Jesus would be a privilege for me. I have counted the risk and deemed it worth it for the sake of the gospel. There's a brother out there right now. What are we saying this morning? The future is uncertain. We've been blessed to live in this country. Certain things don't look too good. But as you face an uncertain future, and we face a little bit of injustice here and there, or mocking or ridicule, remember what we have seen. Rejoice and praise God in the midst of persecutions and trials because of the certainty of your salvation, your relationship with God, and the hope of your eternal inheritance. In the midst of the uncertainty of time, don't gripe, complain, get angry, become fearful. Instead, rejoice and praise God. In the midst of ridicule and rejection, rejoice and praise God. If you happen to be one who loses his or her business or job because of their faith, God's still on the throne. You're still his child. Heaven is still your home. Rejoice and praise God. In the midst of persecution, if it comes, rejoice and praise God. If you have to flee your home and lose your property, as these people in First Peter did, rejoice and praise God. If you even face death, as the brothers I just read, we can rejoice and praise God because he's chosen us to be born again to a living hope and eternal inheritance and praise and honor and glory when Christ returns. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that each of us here might see ourselves as we are in you. By your grace, we are your children.
by your grace, you've made us joint heirs with Jesus. By your grace, you've reserved an inheritance in heaven for us. By your grace, you're with us in the midst of suffering and you see to it that our sufferings are not in vain. They're not meaningless. But the Lord, you're working it for a higher purpose. I pray, Father, we might be a people of praising and rejoicing rather than griping and complaining. Help us to be people who are not fearful, who are not angry, but a people of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see at the communion, uh, in the communion announcement both the aspects that we see in our passage this morning. We see that our hope is based upon what Jesus did, and we see that our hope is built upon the hope of his coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 23, chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, reflecting on me, my love for you and what I've done for you. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But then he goes on and says, For as often as you drink, excuse me, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death past until he comes, our future hope. Let's take a moment just to do privately and quietly give thanks and then partake together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, for a love that we don't understand. The Lord, we appreciate, we enjoy. We thank you for a hope in the midst of the trials of this life. And Lord, ultimately for eternity. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as you are able, and we'll close in song together.